It's a good morning. It's a good time for us to gather together and to study God's Word. If you have a Bible, go ahead and find Matthew chapter 24. Matthew chapter 24. We're going to start in verse 36. Matthew 24, starting in verse 36. Give you just a moment to find that. Well, I'm glad to be with you again, glad to continue on our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. If you remember, or if you were here last week, you uh, heard me teach through the first 35 verses of Matthew 24, which is the Olivet Discourse, is what we call it, the Matthew 24 and 25, this long section of teaching that Jesus has for us. And uh, we learned that Matthew 24 is a difficult passage, right? Last week, we learned all about all these signs and these signs of the end and the destruction of the temple and... Jesus was doing a lot with his, with his words. We listen to Jesus begin to untangle the set of questions that his disciples gave him about the end of the world. Jesus explained last week that many of those signs the disciples would see leading up to the Roman Empire's destruction of Jerusalem. And so we learned at the very end of uh, Matthew 24 in that, in that passage in verse 35 when he said, this generation won't pass away until all these things take place. So we learned that what he was talking about was the destruction of the temple. But last week, we also learned that we read this book, we read this Bible like Christians. And if the only thing for us in Matthew 24, verses 1 through 35, was the destruction of the temple, then it would be difficult for us 1,900 years later uh, to get some application. And so we remember and we, we, we come to the Scriptures alert uh, to the reality that this is God's word for us today, not just Matthew's writing from the first century. So today we're going to continue that kind of Christian reading of the text and see what Jesus has for us, to see what those layers are for us to consider. This week we're going to be more tightly focused, not on the destruction of the temple, Jesus has already, des already described those things, but in verses 36 through 51, he's going to be talking explicitly about his second coming, his return. So what I want to do is I want to read the whole text, and then I'm just going to give you three big ideas uh, from the whole passage. So we're going, to, we're going to read it all together and basically think about it all together. So if, you're, uh, if you have your Bibles open, you should have found by now Matthew 24. Let's start in verse 36. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware of the flood until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant, whom his master has set over his household to give, him, give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that wicked servant says to himself, 
my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow servants and eats and drinks with drunkards. The master of that house, the master of that servant rather, will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour he does not know and will cut him in pieces and put him with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray together before we go any further. Oh God in heaven, we are grateful for your word. We're grateful for the time that we have this morning to study it, to be transformed by it. Lord, we believe that when we read the scriptures, we hear you speak. And so Lord, we pray that by the power of your spirit, you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see. God, I pray for these students this morning as we learn from your word, what it means to, to recognize your coming return, your, your, uh, your second coming, to make all things right, to judge the living and the dead. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to live in light of that return, day by day, alert and awake and ready. Lord Jesus, we love you. We praise you. We ask that your Holy Spirit might help us this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so that's, that's our text. Jesus is, is talking about his return. He starts off by saying, but concerning that day and hour, that is the day and hour of his return from heaven, his return to earth, his return to make all things right, concerning that day and hour, no one knows the time. If you were here last week, you, you saw that, that Jesus was giving all of us and was giving his disciples these signs. And he said, if you could see the signs and see what they're pointing towards, you can have a good estimate, a good idea of what's coming next. You can be prepared because you see these signs unfolding. But now that we're talking about Jesus' return, Jesus says, you have no idea. You have no idea. There, there's no one who knows the day or the hour. Not even the angels of heaven knows the day or the hour. And they are in the presence of God forever, enjoying him, worshiping him, receiving his covenant, his presence, because they're perfect. They're sinless. Angels are not fallen creatures. And yet they don't know when the sun is returning. And then he says, nor the son, but the father only. Well, I don't know if you've ever read that verse and considered it, or maybe you're thinking about it right now, but that's a problematic verse, isn't it? Concerning the return of Jesus, the Son doesn't know when it's happening, but the Father does. Well, that seems interesting. That seems a little problematic because we confess that God is one. And we believe in one God who exists in three persons, right? The Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. For the Father to know something that the Son doesn't know, that seems a little problematic if we confess that there's one God. So what's going on? Well, I'm glad you asked all those questions. If we have time at the end, we're going to come back around to that. Uh, but I want to get to the thrust of this passage and get to what Jesus is actually trying to get in our minds and in the minds of the disciples. So if you're taking notes, you just want to write kind of the first big idea. Uh, it's, the first is the unexpected return. The unexpected return. And that, that, those verses aren't right, but that's okay. Um, the unexpected return. And I have those, that word unexpected in, in kind of some scare quotes. Because it really shouldn't be unexpected, should it? I mean, Jesus is telling his disciples, and we 2,000 years later are reading this word, and, and we hear him say, he is coming soon. You go flip over to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1, and he will say, the angels will say, he is going to return the same way that he came. 
right? You go read the book of Revelation, and you get to the very end, and Jesus says to John at the end of the vision, behold, I am coming soon, right? So it's not unexpected as though, Jesus, I had no idea you were coming back, right? It's not unexpected in in that sense. And so all of us who know Christ, all of us who are followers of Jesus, should, should live our lives with a certain sense of expectation that Jesus could come back at any moment. Jesus' return, as we saw last week, was going to be like a flash of lightning. That's the, the image that he gave us. It's going to be instant, and it's going to be immediately available for all to see. In other words, when we're out in the if we're out outside and there's a, a flash of lightning across the night sky, none of us are going to miss it because it's going to light up everything that we see. Nobody's going to have to point it out to you. Nobody's going to have to convince you that that's actually what's happening. And Jesus is saying, yeah, my return is going to be like that. No one is going to be without, no one's going to have an excuse. Everyone should have expected it. And this week, Jesus continues that pattern with a few different images of what his return is going to look like. It's not just going to be a flash of lightning. It's going to be like these other things. Each of these will give us some insight on the unexpected nature of Christ's return. So in one sense, they are to- it's totally expected. But in another sense, it's not expected at all. The first image that he gives you and me is the image of Noah and the flood. So look again at verse 37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And Jesus lays out this picture that while Noah is building the ark way back in the book of Genesis, everyone around Noah is just kind of living their life. Like Noah is building this ark. And if you kind of do the math and crunch the numbers, it's something like a hundred years or more that Noah is building this ark. So for generations, the people around Noah will look at Noah and say, what is this guy doing? He's like, man, he's building a big old boat. For what? Well, he says there's a flood coming. Flood? Where's the water? Right? We have, we have every reason to believe, according to the book of Genesis, it hadn't rained yet. It never rained before. So they're like, yeah, he thinks there's going to be like water that like comes out of the sky and comes out of the ground and stuff. What? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I know, but he's building that big old boat. Whatever. And so they just kind of live their life, and they go on doing normal things, eating and drinking and marrying, as Jesus says. And yet one day the flood came. One day, the water did fall from the sky. The heavens opened up, and the earth opened up, and the flood was unstoppable. And only God's protected people survived. But before that flood, before that judgment came, the world continued as normal. All around Noah, And if I'm honest, we just kind of apply that to today. If I'm honest, one of my frustrations is when I I look around at the world and just wonder, how can you not see what's going on? Like maybe you feel this way too sometimes, but sometimes if I'm honest, I just get really frustrated at people in the world because I go, how do you not see this? How do you not see what's going on in your own life? How do you not see what's going on in the world? How do you not... Put the pieces together to know that what God has said in his word is true. I think about the warnings of Christ. I think about the brokenness of the world. I think about the offer of eternal life to sinners like you and me. And so many people seem completely oblivious. Like, oh, that's important. 
Like, oh, that should have some kind of like bearing on my life, that that should dictate or maybe influence how I should live or speak or think. In other words, there are so many around us, like the people in Noah's day who see, but they don't see. The signs are all around, just like a massive boat was right in front of many people in Noah's day. So we ought not be surprised when our friends and our classmates and our family members and our coworkers just don't see the danger. They don't see the hope and they don't feel the urgency of eternity. We shouldn't be surprised when that's the case. But we do need to notice that the people in Noah's day were swept away. This wasn't like a metaphor. It's not like a, a, a word picture that's helping us communicate some kind of reality. No, they, there was a flood that took place, and there were no survivors apart from Noah and his family. The judgment is real. And Jesus says his judgment, his return will be like that. So the people who are working or grinding at the mill, there will be two, and one will be taken away, one will be left. There will be Men working out in the field, one will be taken away, one will be left. So think about the, the image there. The, the people who were judged in Noah's day were swept away. And Jesus is saying, my judgment will be like that. There will be many who are taken away. In other words, the ones who are taken away in Jesus' image are the ones who are judged. So maybe contrary to popular belief, according to some really popular books, in the image of Jesus' judgment, you want to be left behind. Right? It's not the people who are taken away who are saved. The people who are taken away are the people who are swept away. It's the people who remain. Those are the people who are saved. So Jesus says, my judgment is going to be like Noah's flood. My return is going to be that instant, that incredible, that full of power. The second image is of a thief breaking into someone's house, right? Look at verse 43. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake, would not have let his house be broken into. So we all get this, right? Like if we knew, if we got like a text today, it was like, hey, um, my name's Frank. I'm a robber. And... Um, this is your address, right? Like, da, 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 da. Yeah, okay, that's my address. Yeah, so like, uh, probably like between 1.20 and 1.30 in the morning, I'm just going to stop by and try to break in, okay? Like, that doesn't happen, right? But we get the picture, right? If we knew that there was someone who was coming to break into our house, and we knew when they would come, we knew where they would be, we wouldn't be like, ah, man, time to go to sleep. No, we would stay up. We would be ready. We would be prepared for that robbery. We'd be like, 911, like, hey, this guy basically said he's coming. And so we would, we would appeal to an authority. We would be prepared ourselves. We would be actively preparing and staying alert for that robber. But that's not what happens, is it? Robbers don't usually, good ones at least, they don't announce that they're coming ahead of time. They don't give you the chance to prepare. Thieves steal because they are sneaky and clever, because they don't show themselves beforehand. 
And in the same way, Jesus says, my return is going to be like that. It's not something that you're going to be actively preparing for, like if a robber told you ahead of time he was coming. So what's the answer? What's the alternative? How do we maintain a sense of expectation for Jesus's return if he's coming like a thief in the night? Look at verse 44. He says, therefore, you also must be ready for the son of man is coming at an hour you do not expect. In other words, he's saying, make it your life. Make it the rhythm of your life to be ready. Make it the the regular practice of your day in, day out, dying to self and following Jesus that you believe deep down in your soul and you model that belief in your life and in your practices and in your thoughts and in your actions and in your words that Christ could come now. He could come right now. And so I want to be ready. I want to be awake. I want to be alert. We'll, we'll dive into that a little bit more in just a moment. But there's one more image that he gives us. And the, the third image, starting in verse 45, is the image of the return of a master to his house. So Jesus says, my return is going to be like when a master sets his servant over his household and leaves and then comes back. So he says to his servant, hey, I'm going to give you some responsibilities. I'm going to give you some authority. I need you to to do these things. I'm going to give you some tasks to obey. And I'll I'll come back. When are you coming back? Well, that's not for you to know, but I'm going to come back soon. Okay. The servants know that the master is coming back eventually, but they don't know exactly when. Some of the wise and faithful servants, that's verse 45, continue to serve as if the master could come back at any moment, while other wicked servants live as if he's never coming back. They abuse their power. They eat and drink with drunkards. They align themselves in such a way to just promote their own pleasure, their own gain, their own life. And it's these two options that we need to dive into more deeply, that of the faithful and wise servant and that of the wicked servant. So second big idea this morning We want to look at the end of the faithful. Like, what is the end of the faithful? What is the goal? What is the the final destination of the faithful? It's life. It's life. For those who follow the Lord, for those who serve their master, who remain awake and alert, the return of Christ is incredibly amazing. It's when we get to be with Jesus face to face when the master returns with the blessing of his own perfect presence. So look at verse 42. After Jesus is talking about the return of Christ being like the flood of Noah, verse 42, therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Verse 44, be ready. Verse 45, wise and faithful servants doing what their master asked of them. So if I'm going to be a follower of Christ who lives with expectation that Christ is coming again, it'll look like being awake and not like not sleeping, right? We get this. It's not like you're just going to, I will never sleep until Jesus returns. That's what Paul gets after in First and Second Thessalonians. We'll talk about that this summer, Lord willing. It's not, that's not what he means. He's not like... You just need to drop everything and just stay awake and keep your eyes fixed towards the heavens. No, but it's that my life is this active preparation, this active expectation. 
that I'm going to continue to live my life in faithfulness. And what is the reward for these kinds of people? Look at verse 46. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. All right, so if Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords and the one through whom the universe is being held up by the word of his power, if he's the word that in Genesis 1 created all things that exist, And in this image, he's the master of the house who will return to find his servant doing what he told him to do. If that master says to you, I'm going to set you over all of my possessions, what does he mean? I'm going to set you over everything because I own everything. In other words, if Jesus is king of kings, he's the one above all. So if we are set over all the master's possessions, it means that we get to sit with Christ. It means that we get to be co-heirs with Jesus. It means that we get to live out all of eternity reigning with Christ. All things that are his are are now ours. We get to enjoy his blessings. His inheritance becomes our inheritance. But if we're honest, that future reality of reigning with Christ seems so foggy and so distant and so unlike my life now. It seems so foreign to the way I live my life today because I'm aware, painfully so, if we're honest with each other, of how many things in my life I don't have control over. I'm so aware so often of how many things I'm not over, of how many possessions I don't have, how many things I don't have authority or power to control or to influence. We wonder if this kind of life really has any bearing on our life right now. And that's why Jesus in this text is imploring, inviting, encouraging his disciples right here and right here to keep going, to persevere, to stay awake, to be ready. Hold your place in Matthew 24 and find Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. I think Paul realizes what Jesus is communicating here. We know that this this scripture, this is one God-inspired, spirit-breathed word. That it does not contradict itself. It, It tells us what God wants us to know. So Galatians chapter 6, look at verse 7. Galatians 6, 7 says... Do not be deceived. In other words, don't believe lies. Believe the truth. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit 
will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Here's the key, verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. But Paul gets this. He gets this because he knows that the churches of Galatia are being battered by false teaching and the pagan lives of many people around them. They're being bombarded with strife and division and disunity and frustration and confusion. And some of them are probably wondering, is this worth it? Because my life right now is really hard. Faithfulness to Jesus seems really hard. Is it even worth it? And for many of you, that's probably the same thing you've said before. I have all of these people who I'm trying to stay in a relationship with, but it's so hard to keep things together. There's all of these things that I have to humble myself for, and it seems like all I'm doing is, is going backwards from what I actually want. Is this even worth it? And Jesus to his disciples, Paul to the churches, and the Spirit to us say, don't give up. Do not grow weary. Look around at those in your life who are serving wisely and faithfully and encourage one another to press on all the unseen obedience in this life. Right, All of those decisions that you've made when no one else saw it, all of those victories over temptation, all of those little acts of kindness, all of those opportunities to look like Jesus that you've taken by God's grace. All of the unrecognized dying to self that you have endured and experienced so far in this life and that you will experience in the future, it is all seen by the Master. It's all seen by God. The fact is, all of us live our lives day to day before the face of God. There's a Latin phrase for this. You may want to learn it. It's coram Deo. Coram Deo. C-O-R-A-M-D-E-O. Coram Deo. Before the face of God. <coughs> I think about Psalm 139, right? This powerful psalm that usually we think about when we think about the sanctity of life. But one of the refrains at the beginning of that psalm is, is that David is crying out, or the psalmist is crying out, where can I run from your spirit, God? There's nowhere I can go that you're not there. I can't escape you. Now, for someone who is wrestling with disobedience and struggling with sin and trying to maintain a hypocritical life, that's incredibly frustrating, isn't it? Because you can't escape him. But for someone who is weary, for someone who is wondering if they still have what it takes to be faithful to Jesus, for someone who has been going day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, and they feel as though they're doing this all by themselves, God's presence is an incredible comfort. All of us live before the face of God. He's with us, and for those in Christ, He is delighted in us.
encouraging us by His Spirit to continue sowing in the Spirit, as Paul said. But there's another end that awaits those who practice wickedness. The end of the faithful is life. We are going to get eternal life, reigning and ruling with Christ, clothed in His righteousness, seeing Him as He is, before Him, face to face at His return. But the wicked will be judged. So if the end of the faithful is life, then number three, the end of the wicked is death. The end of the wicked is death. To the ones who continue to walk in darkness, even after the light has come. To the ones who live without regard for the master of this world. To the ones who fail to love God and their neighbor as themselves but instead love themselves as God at the expense of their neighbors. The return of Christ will not be a joyful day. It will not bring about blessings. It will bring about, as Jesus says in verse 51, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus tells us here that there are those who were not with Noah, in Noah's day, and they were all swept away. There was no defense. There were no exceptions. There was no negotiation. The waters came, and they were destroyed. And in our day, we recognize that there are so many people who are blind to the truth. They are in desperate need of the light of the gospel to come and to shine upon them. And there are many around us who continue to live in sin. It may be blatant, like those wicked servants Jesus talked about who abused the other servants and were getting drunk with the drunkards. But it may be more subtle, like those in the day of Noah who continue to just live their lives apart from the Lord. But the day is coming soon when Christ will judge both the living and the dead. And my hope, my prayer for me as much as any of you, is that we might put on display through our lives and through our actions and our words that the hope of Christ is infinitely better than weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like dying to self in this life means that our judgment is put behind us on the cross. Like if I die now... I won't die later because I've already died. But living for self in this life puts our judgment before us at the throne of Jesus. If I live now to myself, I will die later. And it's that key, that idea that really should be this undercurrent of how we might live our lives, both for our sake and for the sake of the world. I mean, just think about this. If I live my life as a follower of Jesus in a way that is no different than the world who is blind to the gospel, what I'm communicating with my life is that weeping and gnashing of teeth and life with Christ, it's just kind of a toss-up. It really doesn't matter much. Like if I'm saying like, yeah, I'm headed to heaven and this person is headed to hell, 
But if you looked at our lives and there was no discernible difference between those two things, then what we're saying is, is that the ends that we're headed towards are really, they're interchangeable. There's not really much difference. There's not really much difference of how it might affect our life now. We are not saved by our works. We're saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, by his grace alone. But that faith is never alone. And if we live our lives in a way that makes weeping and gnashing of teeth seem just as attractive as life with Christ, then by our words and by our lives, we are speaking another gospel. Now, all of us, this is true, this is true of me, this is true of you, all of us walk through this Christian life stumbling and bumbling and crawling and and falling on our faces because we recognize that what we believe and what we live is out of sync. Right, So I believe that God has come in Christ. I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sins. I believe that his gospel is now true of me, that I've received life instead of death. And yet I still sin. I still fall short of the glory of God. I mean, the key, the key example of this is, is Abraham, right? Way back in Genesis, it says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And like like two chapters later, he pawns off his wife to a foreign king to save his own skin. You're like, that guy that believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness did that? Yeah. Why? Because his belief was out of sync with his life. And the whole Christian life for you and me is this bringing together of our life with our belief. So don't hear me say that if you find yourself falling short in sin, that you're automatically this antichrist who's proclaiming this false gospel in the world. That's not what I'm saying at all. The Spirit of God is able to be the comforter to those who fall short. John tells us, little children, I'm writing to you these things so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate before the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's advocating for us because he knows we're still going to fall short. That's not who I'm talking about. Who I'm talking about, and it may be you, is the person who says with their lips that they believe the gospel, but there is nothing in their life that proves it. There's nothing in their life that is evidence that their heart is bent towards repentance and not towards wickedness. I think about what we heard a couple of weeks ago in Matthew 7. There will be many who come to me and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do these things in your name? And Jesus is going to say, I don't know who you are. Hell is a place where the sustaining presence and grace of Christ is lost. All that is left is God's righteous justice poured out on sin. It is eternal. It is conscious. And it is torment.
the horrors of hell must affect us as we consider how many around us are headed that way because they do not know Jesus. Christ is coming soon. So we stay alert. We stay awake. We keep pressing on. And we let our life and our words be a source of hope and life to those who are still in darkness. We we prepare ourselves. We, We hoist the sails of our boat, so to speak, so that when the wind of the Spirit blows, we might move. It's going to be like a flash of lightning, like a flood, like a thief in the night, like the return of the master. So stay awake. Be ready. And for those of us who are living our lives in accordance with God's word, we stay awake with joy. Right? We, we stay awake with great hope and anticipation. We stay awake like we stayed awake on Christmas Eve when we were kids. Like we know it's coming. We don't know exactly when the chimney opens up for Tim Allen to fall through and put the whole canoe under our tree, but we know it's coming. And we can barely keep it together. We know that the blessings of Christ are coming. We don't know exactly when, but they are surely coming soon. Now, very quickly, uh, I want to give you some time to talk about this. But I told you I'd circle back at the end to Jesus and verse 36. So I want you to kind of put your little thinking cap on for a second. Hang with me for a moment because I do think this is really important. And I don't want to just gloss over this because you may have questions about how does this make sense the, the, the Bible is not, it may be fantastic, it may be miraculous, but it's not illogical, right? It's not like God is like, and I'm going to bless you with square circles. Because those, those, are, those are, don't exist, right? Verse 36, but concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. All right, so Jesus is saying to the disciples that his return is something, that the hour of his return is something that God the Father knows, and yet he does not. God the Father knows it, but the angels don't know it. No one knows it. Not even the Son. So so this, this, this... problem is the issue of two questions. Who is Jesus and what is Jesus? Okay, so so who is Jesus? Jesus is the Son of God. He is the eternal Son who has always existed in perfect unity, joy, with the Father and the Spirit. He always has been, He is, and He always will be. 
It's why he can say in the Gospel of John to the Pharisees that before Abraham was, I am. And they got ready to stone him because they're making, they, they believe that Jesus was making himself to be God because he is. But who is Jesus? Jesus is a person. Just like I'm a person. So when we talk to people, we're talking to persons. When we ask the question, who is this person? We might start to give some characteristics about who this person is or what kind of things they do or how they might dress or where they're from. We start to give some some information. But if I ask you, what is Jesus? It's a different question. So who am I? Well, I'm Aaron. What am I? I'm a human being. Right? I'm not a dog. I'm not a tree. I'm not nitrogen. I'm a human being. I have a nature that is a human nature. It's different from a cat nature or a tree nature, right? I have a human nature. That's what I am. And Jesus, miraculously, mysteriously, has two natures, right? All of us believe this, right? He is divine. He has a divine nature. And he is human. He has a human nature. So Jesus is this divine person, this eternal son of God who is eternal. He has always been. He always will be. But he has added to himself a human nature. And one of the things you get with a human nature, something that we all have, is a human mind. (laughs) Right? You don't just have brain, like we have this like piece of meat in our heads that's protected by our skulls that fires off electricity all the time, you have a mind. You have a mind. You have this aspect of what you are that thinks and reasons and hopes and fears and desires and remembers and plans and knows. So if Jesus, the Son of God, is fully human and fully God, it means that he has a divine mind because he has a divine nature. And he also has a human mind because he has a human nature. Now, this is a little bit difficult, obviously, because we're saying, does Jesus have two minds? Yes. Yes. There are things for which Jesus tells us that he could not have known merely as a human mind. Whether that's from the Spirit who gives him kind of a prophetic understanding or his own divine mind, we're not sure. This is really mysterious. But let me just read to you Acts chapter 1, verse 7. Well, let me read to you verse 6. This is after the resurrection. The disciples come to Jesus and they say, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, this sounds kind of appropriate. We've been talking about the destruction of the temple, the destruction of Jerusalem, the return of Christ. And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And then he goes off and says, But you'll receive power. And the Spirit comes upon you. In other words, Jesus is saying in this verse, when the disciples ask him, 
Are you going to return? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? Jesus says, that's not for you to know. And the implication is, he knows. <laughs> he knows because he's the risen Christ. He's the son of God. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So when we read the gospels, when we read the Bible, we recognize that when we're reading about Jesus, we're reading about the God-man. We're reading about someone who is fully human and fully God. And there are many times in which we come before Jesus and we see his humanity. So when Jesus says to the disciples in Matthew 24, no one knows the day or the hour, not even the son, but the father, he's talking about himself with regard to his humanity. Because God knows all things, right? God is omniscient. He knows all. So this is a little bit difficult for us to consider who is Jesus, what is Jesus, but I hope and pray that as you read the Bible, you will begin to develop kind of a reflex of asking yourself those kinds of questions. When we're talking about the Son of God, who are we talking about? We're talking about Jesus, right? What are we talking about? Maybe a different question. So we want to be faithful to the text. We want to be faithful to God's Word. But the thrust of today is we want to be faithful to God's warning faithful to what Jesus is saying, that his return will be like a thief in the night, and that we're to stay ready, stay alert. So let me pray for you. We'll have some time to talk about this in your groups.